All right. Good morning, guys. Pleasure to be here. Hey, can we give it up for Drew and his announcement? That was hilarious. We got some comedy to start off our time together. That was great. Well, hey, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. I'm one of our college pastors here. I have the privilege of leading and loving Salt Company in St. Paul. And it's good crew. Excited to be here with you. So if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to open up to Psalm chapter 65. That's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm chapter 65. As you turn there, something I've been thinking about recently is that I am the center of the universe. Obviously not. Can you imagine if you met someone who said that? Like, how are you doing? Well, I'm the center of the universe, doing pretty well. You'd be like, okay, never talk to you again. None of us would actually say that with our mouths, but my guess is experientially we all live that out. That we all have a self-centeredness in our worldview. I was thinking about this, and then this morning, I had a tragic incident. I have to tell you about it. I went to Starbucks, obviously. It was me and like no one else at 6 a.m. trying to prep my sermon. Always get a venti glass of water on the side because you're gonna spend $6 on a latte, get a free water, okay? So, got the water, drank the water, got back home, and I decided to be a good person and recycle my water. Biggest mistake of my life. Okay, go to my recycling bin. In my hands, I have my cup of water in my left hand and then my keys in the right hand. I held on to my water and I recycled my keys. Why would I do that? It was so deep in there. I was like, oh my gosh, in my heart. You would have assumed World War III happened. I was like, oh my gosh, like, not like this, Lord. Like, that's it. That's what it felt like. I, like, looked around. I was like, is anyone else seeing this? And it's like, no. So then I had to, like, do the thing of shame where I had to, like, tip my recycling bin over. And then I see on the top, like, stealing recycling is illegal. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not stealing. It's my own. That's what it felt like. I know. I panicked because I was like, what if people report me? Anyways. In that moment, my uh, recycling of my keys defined my entire existence. It's as if nothing else in the world mattered except what I did right there. Okay, why am I opening up with that? I'm opening up with that because I have a little bit of a longer intro this morning, and then we'll speed through the rest of the text. I want to talk about how in our original sin and in our culture, we are being convinced day by day that we are the center of the universe, that your experience is the only thing that matters. Think about this statement. Our culture wants to teach us that the most important thing about life is how you feel about it. The most true thing about life is how you feel about it. We live in a culture that is man-centered in our ideological framework. We believe that the man or the self is at the absolute middle of what everything in the universe revolves around. Okay, why do I mention this ideological framework of our secular culture? I mention that because the problem for us, Redemption Church, is that the man-centered vision of the world is not just that of the world, but has seeped into the church. As the church, over time, has begun to desire relevance over reverence of God, we have slowly but surely shifted the emphasis of Scripture from who God is to who man is. We have developed a man-centered theology. Here's why this is a problem. Man-centered theology produces two different types of things. If you're a note taker, you can write man-centered theology and they do like the lines, you know, where it goes that way and that way. The first thing it produces is a spiritual pride, a spiritual pride. Man-centered theology aims when you open up scripture to ask the question, what does this have to say about me? And the pride actually comes in two different ways. One is spiritual arrogance. 
This would be the camp of fundamentalist Christianity and legalistic Christianity, where the primary goal of scripture is to teach you how to be a good person, okay? I'm gonna avoid that one, sorry Isaac. The fundamentalist goal is to teach you how to be a good enough person that a good God would want to know you. This produces a sense of spiritual arrogance or self-righteousness. Or on the other side of that pride is spiritual insecurity where you constantly realize that you're not good enough to be good enough for a great God. So spiritual pride is a product of this type of ideological framework of man-centered theology. The second thing is on the other side, and that's spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. This is when the teaching of scripture is made to be so relevant to your life that it has been reduced to good news or good advice, not good news where the emphasis is to teach people how Christianity can level up your lifestyle more than being emphasized on the finished work of Christ. Man-centered theology produces spiritual pride and spiritual immaturity, so the conversation that we're gonna be having as we enter into Psalm 65 is how can we be a God-centered people? God-centered people. Three points to our sermon this morning. If we wanna be a God-centered people, we need to be silent. We need to be silent. We need a big God theology. We're going to be talking about a God who is big and deserves all of our reverence and our worship, and we need to remember his provision. Turn with me to verse 1, and here's what it's going to say. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Okay, so this psalm begins with David describing a beautiful picture of praise that is due to God, okay? In other translations, it says that praise is awaiting God. And here's something that's really interesting as I was studying this text. The root word of waiteth is actually that of silence. So the picture that David is trying to describe is a group of people that are so completely consumed with the beauty of God that instead of singing out praises to him, they sit in silence and reverence of him. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, The Message, wrote this about Psalm 65, verse 1, that silence is praise to you, Zion-dwelling God. Here's what we're going to talk about this morning. This psalm is going to introduce a new type of worship. Okay, traditionally, the type of worship that we like is the sing songs, raise your hand, get party. Ooh, ooh. Love that stuff. Love that stuff. We do it every Sunday, in case you didn't understand. We do that. That's our traditional understanding of worship, is seeing the beauty of God and singing out praises that are true of him. What Psalm 65 is going to describe is a worship not of singing but of silence. Here's why it's going to describe that. It's because there are certain things in life that are so beautiful it takes your breath away, does it not? There are certain moments in life when you see a beautiful vista I'm going to use the cliche pastor example. I've only seen this once, but the Grand Canyon, okay? You've heard it 70 times in sermons, but I'm using it again. The Grand Canyon. The right response when you're sitting in the Grand Canyon and you're seeing the beauty of the Grand Canyon is not to sit there and talk about it. Ooh, it's so pretty. And the person next to you is like, stop, stop. Just soak it in because it's that beautiful, right? Second example. You're sitting on a cliff in Malibu. Ooh, delightful. It's 8 p.m., the sun's about to set. You're sitting there, you're looking at the waves crest over the rocks. You can feel the ocean mist. Okay, two options. 
one, you commentate on it like a weirdo, or you sit there in silence, right? Certain things in life are so beautiful that it requires silence. What we're going to be talking about for the rest of this psalm is talking about the power and provision of God. And we're going to put an emphasis not on how God is so relevant for you to live a slightly better life, but the power and provision of God should create reverence within our hearts. When we look at how beautiful God is, sometimes the right response is silence. Okay, so what should we learn from this psalm? We should learn that silence is both a product but a posture of worship, okay? So the product is this. You look at a beautiful Grand Canyon, ooh, silence. Malibu, ooh, silence, as it is with the Grand Canyon. And Malibu, you have Jesus. You look at him, wow, silence. That's a product of worship. The second thing is it's actually a posture of worship. The setting by which you worship matters. Let me give you a word picture. Let's say you're back at the Grand Canyon. You're trying to enjoy it. You're sitting there, you got a latte in your hand. You're like, this is, this is the best. The object of your vision has not changed. But then in the background, you hear teenage boys making your mom jokes. And you're so mad. You're like, I have driven 40 hours to get here. I am angry. Here's the thing. The object of your vision has not changed. Still as beautiful as it was in the silence, but the setting changed. And what did that setting do? It distracted you from the beauty of the vista. Second example, you're on the cliff in Malibu. Oh yeah. You're like, I'm about to see the most beautiful sunset of my life. But right under your cliff, guess what you find? A rave. Boom, 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 EDM only. You see lights everywhere, it's crazy. You're like, what is this? This is not worshipful at all, I hate this. You're like, I, can't, I have to go to a different cliff. That's what happens, right? The setting changed, the vista never did. Here's my question for you. I wonder if the reason why the American church is so man-centered is because we rarely ever get to see the beauty of Christ in silence. If every single moment of your life has background music, oftentimes the music of responsibility or stress or life or quite literally music or podcasting or Joe Rogan, I don't know what you listen to, but my guess is very few of us ever spend any meaningful time in the posture of silence in order to index our hearts towards Christ, in order to see clearly what is true about God. When is the last time you spent some time in silence? Okay, so as I was thinking about this, uh, I got into this thing recently, some of you guys may have heard about it, it's called running, very exciting. I started a RRC, Redemption Run Club. If you'd like to join it, you can shoot me a text. There's 30 people in it. It's a movement. Okay, it's not. It's not. That's like what every fitness thing is like. It's a movement. It's like, there's just seven people in the room. Okay. The max attendance has been five on a Saturday. I'm pretty ashamed. Okay, moving on. So I started doing this thing called running. It's a horrible experience. I hate it. My legs are so short, like disproportionately to the length of my body, and my body length is short. So just in general, very painful activity. The first, <laughs> the first two weeks of running... It's just straight up pain. There's no enjoyment in it, it's horrible. After the first two weeks, you start to experience it like adjacent to fun, not actually fun, but it's like pretty close. One day, one day the worst thing that could have ever happened happened. I forgot my AirPods. The level of disappointment in my soul was terrifying. So I get there and I get to this little lake that I ran around because it's easier to run around water than just back and forth. 
I get there and I don't have my AirPods. And I start freaking out because I literally was like, I don't know if I can run without something distracting me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even know if I can get like a quarter mile because I just, I hate, that, hate it so much. Something incredible happened, okay? This is gonna sound over-spiritualized, so don't hate me, okay? But I started running and I realized like three minutes in, I was like, this is the first time in years, like actual years, that I've been silent, that I haven't like listened to something, that I haven't like watched Netflix, that I wasn't consuming content. And then guess what happened guys? The first five minutes, I ran out of stuff to think about. I was like, oh shoot, like thought through my day, I've thought through all my problems, okay, okay, here's the deal, solved them all, great. And then I had like 35 minutes left of the run and I was like, what am I gonna think about? And here's, this was even before this text, I just started thinking about like little truths of God. And I like did the cliche thing where you run around and you're like, oh my gosh, the trees, so beautiful creation. I did that and it was so awesome. Like it was so good. And then I just started thinking about the ways that Jesus has come through for me time and time again. And I swear it was like, like more encounter with Jesus than at like a conference. It was more revealing than a C group. Like I was there and I'm like, oh my gosh, is this what it's like to be in silence? It was great. Okay, here's the application for this point. Don't run, don't do it. The first two weeks, not gonna be worshipful at all. Find a different way to get into silence, okay? <laughs> Maybe for you, you live an incredibly busy life. You're in this season of life that it is a grind. You can't just go out and spend 40 minutes around a lake being silent by yourself. Maybe for you, you just commit like one or two commutes this week to silence. You sit there in silence, which is gonna feel so weird for every part of your body. You're gonna be like, oh no, this is terrible. Do it, it'll be great. Maybe for you, it's grocery shopping. Like whenever you go grocery shopping, you're just gonna commit to not thinking about other stuff, but just being as silent as possible. If you go to Costco, this is not gonna work because Costco is incredibly loud. But if you go to Trader Joe's and stuff, you'll be fine. So that's selective. I don't know what situation that it would be for you, but my guess is very few of us ever meaningfully carve out time to be silent with the Lord. And I just wonder if what we're missing in the local church in America today is not more relevance, not more hipster stuff, but silence by which we can see the reverent God and encounter him beautifully. That's part one, silence. The second thing we need if we wanna live a God-centered life is we need big theology, okay? We need a God-centered theology. Look with me to verse three. Verse three says this, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth of the furthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves and the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and evening shout for joy. Okay, here's what the essence of Psalm 65 is all about. That God is massive, okay? He is huge. Have you ever seen someone 
that's so big, and you're like, can you fit through that doorway? That's the imagery that came to mind. I was like, oh my gosh, God is so big, okay? I know I just compared God with a bodybuilder, but that's, it's just imagery. You got to have it in your mind. God is massive. He is the one who established Everest. He is the one who calms tsunamis on the seas. He is absolutely huge, and the best example of that is in verse 4, that he chose you. That if you are in Christ, if you are saved by him, here is your reality. You were on a highway to hell. You had no amount of morality or Christian stuff or Bible verses that you could memorize in order to save yourself. And God, by his word, came and got you. It is a miraculous evidence of his power in your life. God is absolutely massive. And yet we live like he is so small. Redemption, if you're anything like me, 99% of your life, you just do your own thing. You get up and you plan your own day. You have the conversations you want to have. You do the things that you think you need to do. And it's only when stuff hits the fan that you call God. See, I think the biggest problem with the American church today is not that we're not cool enough, that we don't sing the right songs, that we don't have the pretty enough buildings, but it's that we're selling a vision of God that is far too small for how glorious he actually is. See, maybe the reason why we're so man-centered as a people and a culture is because we actually fundamentally believe that we're the one who controls our lives and not God. That we're the ones who establishes our steps, not God. That we're the ones who makes our plans and fulfills them, not God. I wonder if our vision of God is actually far too small for a God so big. Okay. Why does having big God theology matter? Here's why. As you view God in reverence, which I'm just going to define reverence as right-sizing who he is, that he is absolutely massive and holds control over everything in life and including your life, all the way down to your inception and your salvation, viewing God rightly as who he is, when you see God as huge, your problems become right-sized and your prayers actually have power. So you think the problem for us is that our problems feel like they're massive in our lives. And they actually are. Some of our problems are absolutely massive. Some of us have health conditions that are absolutely terrifying for us. Some of us have loneliness that has stuck with us for years upon end. Some of us just lost our jobs and we're wondering, is God going to come through? Those problems are actually as real as you think they are. But the problem is not that we don't view our problems rightly. The problem is that we do not view our God rightly. The problem is that unless you have a big vision of God, your problems will be the biggest thing in your life. But if you see God rightly, the rest of your problems become right-sized and become opportunities for God to express his glory in your life. The second thing it does is it actually gives our prayers power. Guys, we as Christians are eternal optimists, okay? Drew talked about this last week. It was great. That we're optimists. But we're not optimists because we just hope things get better. We're not optimists because we're just hoping the economic trend, you know, just keeps going up and to the right. And then, you know, we can become like a really great socialist, whatever. That, I didn't mean socialism in the way that it just made it sound. Whatever, that's not part of the sermon. Going back. That was a mistake and would take me way too long to describe. Here's the reality. We are not optimists because we just generally hope culture will get better. 
We are optimists because we have a deep founded hope that a powerful God is with us. A big God theology gives our prayers power and reminds us that God is with us in our prayers and so we can start praying for some pretty crazy things. We can start praying that God will sanctify us out of years and years of slavery to a sin struggle. We can pray for that and believe he'll come through. We can start praying that God would mend our marriages so that we could actually in 50 years say that God had come through for us in those ways. We can pray that God would actually renew and revive the church here in the West. I keep reading all these articles. They're so depressing. Don't read them, okay? But it's like, oh my gosh, the church is dying. I'm like, gosh, do we not actually believe that God in his power can revive or renew his church? Like, we should believe that. And even if he doesn't hear, he's doing it all over the world. So either way, our prayers get answered. But, you know, we should also still pray that God would do it here. That God would move in a mighty way in our culture. That he would not be forgotten in 50 years, but that he would move in a mighty way and renew and revive the West. Why do we not pray for these things? Because we have a far too small vision of God. Okay, so here's the application for you. What would it look like for you to begin to apply a big God theology to all the problems and prayers of your life? As you look at your problems, what would it look like for you to apply a massive God theology? That their problems are big for you but small for him, and in right-sizing of him, you get a right-sized view of your problems. What would that look like? What would it look like for you to pray with power, believing that God is the one who's saving and transforming the world and is sanctifying you. Okay, so in review, what have we talked about so far? We've talked about in order to be a God-centered people, we need to be in silence. We need a new setting that's different from culture. If culture is noise, we need silence, okay? We talked about needing a big God theology, and we're gonna wrap up by talking about we need to remember his provision. Look with me to verse nine. Remember his provision. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for you have prepared it. Your water, it furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with the grain. And they shout and sing together for joy. Okay, here's going to be our working definition of provision, okay? The provision of God. The definition we're going to work with is his power displayed through intimacy. Okay, if God is just powerful but not intimate, we should be afraid. We should be afraid. If he holds all authority on heaven and earth but he is not intimate, we should be deathly afraid. If God is intimate without being powerful, then we should be indifferent. If he cannot enact change and provide for the world, then we should be indifferent. But if he is all-powerful and fully intimate, then we should be deeply comforted and given miraculous hope. So what we're going to look at is the provision of God in this text. Think about it. God is so good. He doesn't just, or he doesn't just create the world. He waters the world. He provides the grain. His provision is abundant. His blessings create growth. And over and over again, this psalm is describing the kind, intimate power of God displayed in his creation. All right, church, we talked about this a lot. We do not believe in the prosperity gospel. That stuff sucks, okay? We hate that. The prosperity gospel 
is the idea that if you follow Jesus, you'll get healthier and wealthier, okay? Hotter and richer. We don't believe that. We do, in fact, believe in the provision gospel, that God, through his miraculous power and intimate love for us, comes through for us and sustains us day by day. We believe that vision of provision, that God is miraculously helping us move forward. The reason why we kind of end with this in our time together is because there are going to be seasons in your life where as you enter into the silence of the setting, you will really struggle to hear God. You'll struggle to believe that he is good. There'll be seasons of life where the big God theology doesn't help you understand your problems rightly and you don't feel power behind your prayers. And so what you need in those seasons is a past reminder of God's faithfulness to you. It's a reminder that he came through for you with power through intimacy in your past to give you vision for the future. I was, um, when we got to college, when I got to college, I, I just, in general, very fearful human being. I don't know if you're like that, just scared of everything, just in general. But uh, got to college, and a big part of my story is that we just had no money for college. We grew up incredibly poor, so there was no way that we were gonna be able to afford it, so I basically went to college hoping that I'd be able to afford it, which is not the best way to do it. As I think back on my college career, the two words that I can genuinely believe and describe is God provided. He just did. Like, guys, this, my freshman year, I got a scholarship that I didn't apply for. I didn't even know who it was named after. I was genuinely confused on my transfer. I was like, what is that? But then next to it, it said $5,000. I was like, thank you. That's really nice. It was for room and board. I didn't even apply for this scholarship. And somehow, he found me. I was like, wow, that's great. Time and time again, God provided jobs. Season by season, he came through. It was never all at once. I didn't receive a million-dollar check to start my college career. Otherwise, my life now would look a lot different. That'd be awesome. But season by season, God provided through his power and intimacy for me. And as I reflect on that season, here's what that does for me. As I'm fearful of my future, as I'm unsure about what the next season of life holds, how we'll be able to afford this or that, if we'll ever be able to buy a house, et cetera, et cetera. You guys get that struggle. As we think about all of the things that are coming in our way, the thing that helps me the most is remembering God's power delivered through intimacy in my past. Here's my question for you. What are stories that you can remember of how God came through for you? Maybe for you right now, you're in a season of mental health where it's been days, if not weeks, or months that you've wakened up excited to grieve. Can you remember a season where you were on a breaking point and God came through for you? May that be the script as you move forward. Maybe for you, you're in the season where you have three kids. I just hung out with the Huntings yesterday. We walked their girls. It was very cute. They're in these little tricycles, very adorable. But when you have three kids, you just like don't have free time anymore, okay? You're just tired all the time. There's always stuff to do. Maybe it's been a long time since you've really felt like the Spirit has refreshed your heart. Think back to seasons where he's come through for you. This is the anti-hype vision of Christianity. 
Much of Christianity is not mountaintop moments where you feel intimate and near to Christ, where in the silence you see him perfectly. Much of Christianity is remembering the faithfulness of God to you. So hold on and draw near. Okay, the way I want to close our time together is by describing a different setting of silence. I almost just fell off right there. My left knee buckled. Step back. That's terrifying. That is, it seems like such a far fall. Okay. I want to kind of close our time together by describing what we just talked about. That if we want to live a God-centered life, we need to actually have a silent setting by which we can see God clearly without the distractions of the noise of the culture around us. That we need a big God to enact his power upon us. And we need the provision of God to remember his faithfulness to us. The way I want to end our time together is by describing a different setting of silence. Think about Jesus on the cross when he would cry out, Abba, Abba, why have you forsaken me? And the setting he found himself in was silence. That God would not respond to him so that in our silence now we can be intimate with him. Think about the cross of a big God who became broken and small for us. Think about the provision, power of salvation delivered through intimacy, through the gentle nailing of Jesus on the cross. Think about the cross. See, Redemption Church, ultimately, the reason why we're God-centered people is not just because we don't want to be like the culture, we don't want to fall into man-centered theology. The reason why we're God-centered people is because in that silent moment, God did not respond to his own son so that in our silent moments, we can approach the throne of grace. So how we're going to end our time together is a little bit different. I'm going to call the worship band back up. And we're just going to enter into a moment of silence. There will be some strumming in the background. But the goal of this moment is to maybe give you a 90-second to 120-second window where maybe the only time this week you will truly be silent before the Lord. And my hope for you in this time is that as you enter into a time of silence, you would taste and see that the Lord is good and that with clarity you could see his beauty and that he would take away your words from you. Let me pray that that would be true of us. Father, as we enter into this time of silence, my prayer for us is that we would encounter you. We want to be God-centered people. We want to be people who in the silence see the beauty of you Father, we want to be awestruck by your glory. Like the Grand Canyon or the ocean waves in Malibu, we want to stare at you. That 2,000 years ago, there was another moment of silence. As you hung there on the cross, as you screamed, Abba, Abba, why have you forsaken me? That moment of silence is the reason why in this moment we can enter in intimately know you, experience a big God that was broken for us, and experience your provision, power delivered through intimacy. So Father, as we enter in, I pray that as we look towards you, we would experience a reverence, that you are right-sized in our eyes, that you are a big God, and that you will always come through for us. 
I pray these things would be true. Amen.